this is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Well, open your Bibles this morning to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. If you're new today, uh, we are walking through... Uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And so week by week, verse by verse, we've walked through this letter. And so we've come to chapter 5 and verse 3. So we're going to look at verses 3 through 8 of chapter 5 today, which is all about purity and freedom. You know, we live in a world where um, the world kind of thinks that that's, that sexual purity and freedom are not things that go together, but they absolutely go together. Those two things go together because real freedom in Christ is found in purity, and, and he tells us how to have that. Um, so let's look at this morning, catching the wave of purity and freedom and let's begin in Ephesians 5 and uh, with verse 3. If you'll just follow along in God's word with me. The Apostle Paul says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us today to understand uh, what your word says about such a relevant topic. Uh, because just like the first century Ephesians, we're living in a world today where we're really bombarded with uh, sensuality, from all kinds of, of sources. And you call us to purity. You call us to the freedom that is found in Christ. You have made it possible for us to be delivered from the slavery to sin that um, characterizes so many people in our world. And so, Father, in a world with so much confusion on these issues, so much enslavement, so many addictions, we pray that you would show us the freedom that is found in Jesus. Freedom won for us through his death for our sins on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. We pray that you'd speak to us now through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was teaching our kids uh, how to catch 
waves. We would go out into the breakers and I would tell them, you wait until the wave comes in. And just before the wave breaks, you're going to feel your body being pulled down and back a little bit. And the moment that you feel your body just kind of being pulled down, I want you to launch forward and paddle as fast as you can and catch the wave just before it breaks. Well, that moment just before a wave breaks, when you feel your body being pulled down, that's an undertow. It's always something that we have to be aware of in the ocean. Well, the world has its own undertow. God's new age has come crashing ashore through the resurrection of Jesus. But until Christ returns and makes all things new, there's going to be an undertow that we're going to feel in this life. And Paul is writing here to people in first century Ephesus who were coming out of the world. They, they, they were coming out of a culture that was just awash with sexual immorality, with sensuality, with promiscuity, all of that. And, and these, these Christians uh, were coming out of that culture, and really a lot of them had been a part of that. That had been their lifestyle before they came to know Jesus. And now they were new creations in Christ. But Paul knew that the world's undertow was always going to be there trying to pull them back down. And what he was trying to communicate to them and, and, and communicate to us is how we can catch that wave of purity and freedom and be propelled forward instead of being sucked down. That's what this text is, is all about. So, how do, we, how do we catch that wave of purity and freedom? A couple of things. First thing that he's saying here is, is don't covet what is not yours. Instead, be thankful for what God has given. He begins in verse 3. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Now, the Greek word that is translated here as sexual immorality, the Greek word is porneia, which not surprisingly is where we get the word pornography from. When the Bible uses that word, it's really talking about any sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman. That's sexual immorality, according to Scripture. Now, how does that relate to covetousness? How does sexual immorality and impurity, how does that relate to covetousness? Well, what is covetousness? Covetousness is when we desire something that is not ours. So, if we desire someone that is not our spouse, 
then we've moved into the area of sexual immorality. To desire our spouse is to desire the good gift that God has given. Um, But outside of that, we're desiring someone that doesn't belong to us. That is covetousness. So that's how these things relate. Now listen, sexual sin, like every other kind of sin really, is something good twisted. See, Satan's not very original. All he can do really is take the good things that God has given and twist them. Okay, pervert them, warp them somehow. Okay, that's, that's really what every sin is. It's something good that's twisted. Um, and he, Satan has, has warped it. Okay, and when it came to sexual sin... That was absolutely the case in the city of Ephesus in the first century, and that's the case in our culture today. You really get a flavor in chapter 4 and verse 19 of what the, whole, the Gentile world was, was like when it came to sexuality. And, of course, that's the world that these people were, were coming out of. Um, Paul says they have become callous. And have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So he says, first of all, that they've become callous. And you remember we talked about the fact that like when you have calluses on your skin, it means that you, you, your skin loses its sensitivity. You just don't, don't feel, you know, uh, you don't feel things. Your skin's become callous, it's become numb. And what he's saying here is that the Gentile world was so awash with sexual immorality, and that's kind of the case with our culture today, unfortunately, is that um, people have just lost sensitivity to it. It's like they've, they've lost the capacity to even be embarrassed by their behavior. Someone, someone, said, someone said about our culture uh, today uh, that we've forgotten how to blush. You know, that's the idea here when he says they've become callous. And he says they've given themselves up to sensuality. In other words, all restraints are off. They have just abandoned themselves completely to uh, sensuality. And then he says they've become greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And really what what he means by that is that by indulging their lust, it doesn't satisfy their lust. It just makes them want even more. And listen, that is the case with lust. That is the case with every kind of addiction. When you indulge it, it doesn't satisfy it. It just makes you want even more. Darren Patrick, in his book, The Dude's Guide, in manhood says this, lust is a monster. The more you feed it, the bigger it grows. Lust is a monster. And the more you feed it, the bigger it grows. Now, Satan's goal in um, not only sexual sin, but really in, in, in sin in general, and certainly in every kind of sinful addiction is twofold. He seeks to dehumanize and he seeks to destroy. 
First of all, he seeks to dehumanize. Instead of becoming the the flourishing person, the the free person that, that you were created to be by God, your life just becomes progressively more enslaved as whatever it is that you're into begins to dominate your life more and more. There's no more graphic example of this than in J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. If you've ever read the books or you've seen the movies, you remember the character named Gollum. Gollum is a hideous, pathetic creature who is completely enslaved to this ring, this evil ring of power. And he refers to the ring as my precious. And it's become an idol to him. And progressively it's just... It's just dehumanized and made him, made him subhuman. He didn't used to be Gollum. He was Smeagol. He was a hobbit. And then one day, he, was, he found this ring and was entranced by it. And, it. and it came to dominate his life. It became his precious thing. There are a lot of Gollums in our world. There may be some golems sitting here today, and maybe on the outside everything looks good, but, but inwardly there is, is some habitual sin that is just, just dominating your life, and, and, it's, and it's keeping you from, from becoming the person that God created you to be. He created you to be free, not to be a slave of some habitual sin. He created you to flourish. And whatever it is, it's keeping you down. It's keeping you from breaking through. It's what Satan does. He seeks to, to dehumanize and ultimately to destroy. Jesus says in John 10.10, 10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. But Satan rarely seeks to destroy through a frontal assault. He's more crafty and subtle than that. Second Corinthians eleven fourteen says he masquerades as an angel of light and he pulls he pulls you into a trap. He makes something that's bad look really good and then he kills softly. I don't know if this still is done today, but I'm told that the way that Eskimos used to kill wolves was to take a, a super sharp knife and coat it with several layers of animal blood and freeze it and then stick it in the snow blade up. And when the wolf comes and he begins to lick and he gets a taste of the blood, and he begins to lick all the more aggressively and, and vigorously. And his tongue is numbed. The wolf's not even aware that he's beginning to consume his own blood. That's a picture of the way that, that Satan destroys 
lives through sexual immorality, through all kinds of addictions, whether it's alcohol, drugs, whatever it is. And this is why we must be ruthless, ruthless when it comes to dealing with sin. We can't play around with it. You know, Jesus said, if your arm causes you to sin, cut it off. And of course, he was using hyperbole there. But the point is, deal ruthlessly with sin. Don't play around with it. Don't flirt with it. Kill it. And that's why Paul says here in verse 3 that there must not even, it must not even be named among you. In the NIV it says um, uh, there should be not even a hint of sexual immorality among you because really it's kill or be killed. Sin is like a terrorist that is bent on destruction and it's either kill or be killed. The Puritan theologian John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Paul says in Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, how does he say that we're to kill sin here? Um, and this is not just sexual sin, this is any kind of sin. We kill it by the power of the Spirit. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. It has to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, we have no chance to do this in our own strength. None. It has to be done in prayerful dependence upon God. Asking for the power of the Spirit. It has to be done by having our minds transformed by the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's our Bibles. And it has to be done in close fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ who can support us in prayer, who can help to hold us accountable, and the Spirit works through them. We need all of those means of grace in order to put sin to death. And, and so it means doing it in the, in the power of the Spirit, and it means taking the practical steps that are necessary. Look at what Paul says in Romans thirteen fourteen. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Listen, <clears throat> if lust is a monster, and the more you feed it, the bigger it grows than for crying out loud, stop feeding it. Stop providing it with food. Cut off its supply of oxygen, its supply of food. Make no provision for the flesh. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it. And so we need to ask ourselves some really practical, honest questions. If lust is an issue in our lives, then we need to be asking practical questions like, when do I struggle the most? Where do I struggle the most? 
What time of day do I struggle the most? What situation am I usually in when I struggle the most? And we've got to take the practical action to change our lifestyle, change our daily routine. We, I mean, we've got to get practical so that, that we're making no provision for the flesh, that, that we, are, we are fleeing, fleeing sexual immorality. Now listen, idols can't simply be removed. They have to be replaced or they come back. Okay? It, it, we talked about this in our, our men's group last, last spring. It's, it's not only a, a, an issue of removing idols. Those idols have to be replaced with the things of God. And that's kind of what Paul is getting to here in verse 4 when he says, Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. He's saying, remove one kind of talk and replace it with another kind. See, mouths are, words are powerful. Words are powerful. And our brains and our tongues are linked. And so if we engage in sort of a lot of you know, crude, uh, sensual type of, of talk, and we sort of take that all in. I mean, that's just, that's making provision for the flesh. I mean, that's just feeding what we don't want to feed. And so he says, replace that with words of thanksgiving, words of gratitude to God, so that we're, we're cultivating an attitude of gratitude, so that we're thankful for the good gifts that God has given us, um, and we're not desiring those things which do not belong to us, um, which is at the heart of, of sexual immorality. Now, when it comes to removing bad habits and replacing them with good habits... That's not easy, because habitual sins are just that. They're habitual, and that means that they're deeply ingrained in our lives, deeply ingrained in our thought patterns. They might have been there for years, and to break out of that is, is, is not easy. To replace those bad patterns of thinking and living uh, with good ones, it just... It, it takes time. It may feel strange at first. You know, if you, if you play golf and you take a golf lesson, the first thing that the golf pro is going to do is check your grip on the club. And that's because he knows that no matter, he, he, can, he can talk until he's blue in the face. He can give you all kinds of advice. But if your grip is bad, it's not going to make any difference. Okay, that, that has to come first. But here's the deal. Your bad grip that you've been using all along, that feels natural. The bad grip feels like the right grip. It, the bad grip feels good. The, the good grip feels weird, feels strange. You feel like you could never hit the golf ball with that grip, but you can. And after a while, you hit it a lot better than you ever could have you, had you not changed the grip. Um, but it takes time. Yeah, I remember when I learned how to type 
you know, when they first teach you how to type, you know, you got to put, they tell you that your, fing- your fingers have got to be on the certain keys, you know, so um, ring finger and index, uh, middle finger and index finger, you know, they've got to be on three keys here and three key- keys on this side, and, and you've got to memorize the keyboard and, and, and all that stuff. Well, if you were to put a blank keyboard in front of me today and ask me to label keys, I could not label a single key. I have no idea what's on that keyboard, but I want to tell you, my fingers can flow over that keyboard like it's a musical instrument. I mean, I can type. I can type fast. But I don't, it's so natural now that I don't, I don't even know what keys my hands are touching. Okay, that, that freedom that I have in typing came through the discipline of typing for many years. Um, I can go out and run for a few miles now with, without pain. But when I first started running again after many years, um, it, wasn't, it was hard. My lungs hurt. My legs hurt. Okay, But the, the freedom that I have now, that, that freedom came through discipline, which is how freedom usually comes, Right? Discipline is not meant to take away our freedom. It's really meant to help us to have freedom. And listen, we, we can't, I, I, you know, I, I, can't, I, I can't make this any clearer. It takes discipline to live a godly life. It just does. Okay, the Bible is super clear about this. We've got to be disciplined both in fleeing sin and disciplined in pursuing God. Okay? First um, Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7. Paul says to Timothy, train yourself for godliness. Some translations translate that as discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. But the Greek word that the ESV translates here is train. Some translations translate it as discipline. Okay, that Greek word is the word that we get the English word gymnasium from. It's a word that's dripping with sweat. Okay, it's saying you've got to work out for the purpose of godliness. Um, you've got to be disciplined both in, in what you're fleeing from and in who you're pursuing in your pursuit of, of God. First um, Corinthians 9, verses 25 and following. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Um, so yeah, a godly life in Christ takes discipline. Discipline in fleeing from sin and discipline in pursuing God, in removing bad habits and replacing them with good ones, in, in removing idols and replacing them with the things of God. Now, in verses 5 and 6, Paul gives a warning. He says, "For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. These are sobering words, aren't they? And it's important to understand who Paul is talking about and who he's not talking about. Paul is warning here of hell, clearly. He is not talking about the, the Christian who, um, who has, has, has a new life in Christ, but they're, they're struggling. I mean, Christ has given a new life, but, and they're seeking to live a godly life, but they still struggle, you know, and, and that's all of us. Let's be honest, okay? That's just a Christian life, right? We take a couple of steps forward, if we take a step back, and we fall on our face. But what do we do? You know, for genuine Christians, when we fall on our face, we get up off the ground, we confess our sin, we repent of it, and we press on. Okay? That's the Christian life. Okay? Now, the fact that we care about our sin, and when we blow it, we re- repent of our sin and confess it, and and get up and follow the Lord, okay, that's a mark of the grace of God. That's a mark that someone is saved, okay? What Paul is talking about, he's talking about people who don't care. (laughs) They don't care about their sin. They have abandoned themselves to it. And remember here, he's writing to a church, and Paul was aware that there were going to be people who would make a profession of faith in Christ and then turn from God and just abandon themselves to sin. And what he's saying here is that we're not doing those people any favors to assure them of a salvation that they don't have. They need to be warned because um, they're... You know, they're, uh, the fact that they don't care about their sin, they're, they're not repenting of their sin, you know, that's, that's an indication that they've never experienced saving grace and that the Holy Spirit is just not there in their lives. Now, in verses 7 and 8, he gives us another principle to, uh, to remember, and it's this. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. This is critical. This is absolutely critical in, in, in dealing with sin and growing in Christ is to remember who you are in Christ. It, it's something that Paul comes back to again and again. He says in verses 7 and 8, Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You have a new identity in Christ. This is so crucial. I, I can't emphasize this enough. In growing in Christ, in overcoming sin, it is so crucial for us to continually remind ourselves of who we are in Jesus. To preach that truth to ourselves. Every day. To daily just remind yourself, I'm a new creation in Christ. Um, I have a new identity. That, that's what he says in Romans 6. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin 
and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You are, if you're a believer, listen, you are in Christ. Christ has died and been raised. You have died and been raised. That's what is pictured in baptism, which we saw earlier. The lowering beneath the water, burial, death, the raising up out of the water, that's resurrection. That's what's happened to our Savior. That's what's happened to us. Christ has died and been raised. As a believer, you have died and been raised. Yes, new life. And we've got to keep coming back to that. We have to keep reminding ourselves of that. And, and so that's why Paul says in the very next verse, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You're a new creation in Christ. You're not a slave to sin anymore. Sin should have no sway over you anymore. Why? Because you're dead to sin and alive to God. You are a new creation in Christ. That's our identity, okay? So the Christian life is a matter of reminding ourselves of that each day and learning to walk in the power of the Spirit. British New Testament scholar N.T. Wright tells about a a choir in a little church in England. And this choir had never had anybody to work with them. And so, they weren't very good. In fact, that's kind of an understatement. When people in the church would come up and thank them for uh, singing, it was kind of more out of sympathy, okay, than genuine appreciation for the music. Um, But, you know, they never had anybody to work with them or anything. Well, then they got a, um, a, a choir director to come in and somebody who really knew what he was doing and, and so, um, he came in and he just began to work with them. He accepted them as they were. You know, he didn't yell at them for singing out of tune. I mean, that just would have depressed them, made it worse. No, he came in, he accepted them uh, where they are, but the goal was, was, was not to leave them where they were. The goal was to teach them to sing. And over the course of time, that's exactly what happened. They, they, they now sing remarkably well. Same people, totally different sound. That's kind of what God does with us. God, God accepts us. When we come to Christ, God accepts us just as we are. With, with you know, muddy, <laughs> messy, singing out of tune. He he accepts us as we are by His grace. But He accepts us as we are, not to leave us as we are. No, He he begins to work with us. Patiently, lovingly, in the power of the Spirit, He begins to work with us and progressively transform us so that instead of being sucked down by the world's undertow, we can catch that wave and ride it and the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you 
for your grace. We thank you that, that you receive us just as we are with, with all of our baggage, our past, our mess, all the things that we've done to ourselves through sin. You accept us in Christ just as we are. But we thank you that you don't leave us like that. We thank you that, that your Holy Spirit enters into our lives and, and lovingly, patiently, you begin to do a beautiful work of transformation. Freeing us from slavery to sin and, 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 and helping us to understand that liberation, that freedom that is found in Jesus and in living in the power of the Spirit. Father, I pray for anyone here today that has not yet entered into a saving relationship with you through your Son. I pray that today they would call upon you. And right now, as we just continue to bow before God in these moments of reflection, you know, maybe I'm talking to you. I don't know where you are as far as a relationship with God today, but I do know this. I know that, that everything has been done for you to have that relationship. It was done by Jesus on the cross. He died for your sins so that you can be completely forgiven. And he rose from the dead so that you can have abundant life and eternal life. And the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Right now, you can call upon Christ to save you. Just turn to Him in repentance and faith. Say, Lord, I'm sorry for trying to do my life apart from You, my way. I need You. And right now, I, I, I turn from trying to do life my way and I turn to Jesus. And I trust in Christ alone. I trust in what Jesus did for me on the cross and dying for my sins. I believe that He rose from the dead and I rely completely. I'm relying completely on what Jesus has done for me. Now if that's your prayer, if that's the cry of your heart, listen. Christ receives you. He receives you. He receives you as you are. And He's going to begin a beautiful work in your life. And part of that work is a church family which is here to support and to help, and to love, to come alongside. And so if you're here this morning and you're saying yes to Christ, that means you also say yes to His church. And in a moment as we stand and sing, I want to invite you just to slip out from where you are. I'm going to be here at the front. Just share with me what God has done in your life today. And as a church, we just want to come alongside you and love you and help you to grow in Christ and be here for you as your brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe you're here today and God's speaking to you um, about, you know, being a part of this church family. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe you've, you've moved here or, um, you know, you've, you've been a Christian for a while, but you know you need to be plugged into the local church. Um, we want to invite you to, to come today. And say, uh, Pastor, I want to be a part 
of what God is doing here at First Baptist. Maybe you're here today and you need somebody to pray with. You know, we don't want to want you to leave here today without being prayed for. You come. So, Father, speak to hearts right now in this time of decision. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.